0: Hello and welcome to Jaitavanarama Buddhist Monastery. Welcome back from our last week's discussion about the workings of the mind. You remember from last week that we entered some new territory. Our regular listeners, perhaps those who might have been with us well before we started the new series of Dhamma Talks, would be familiar with some of those concepts. But perhaps the majority of you might have found last week's talk interesting on many levels, not least because it may have been the first time, you would have come across a new approach, a new perspective on the mind. My attempt in the previous week was to introduce you to the mind. And I admit that the mind itself is something of a weird but wonderful entity, given that it's something that is difficult to capture, something that is difficult to envisage. The mind itself can only be observed through the mind. It is not something that you can put on the dissecting table, not something you can look under the microscope. It's a funny thing, isn't it? It seems to escape all logic. One reason in one moment you want something, you want to do something, you, want, you feel like doing something, and in the next moment there can be something completely different. At least the body seems to follow some logic and reason. If you feel hungry right now, chances are, unless you feed the body, you will continue to feel that hunger. If you are wounded, unless you tend to it, chances are you will continue to feel the pain. So the body is something that seems to adhere to logic that we can understand. But the mind appears to be a completely different beast altogether. For all time and effort spent studying the mind, I wouldn't be surprised if scientists of today, doctors, physicians, would turn around and say that this is the bit about our human existence that they least understand. Now, yes, there is a discipline of medicine which deals with the mind which we understand as psychology, but how much do psychologists actually understand about the mind? For all its advancements and for all the development in this branch of medicine, I feel, on a personal level, that this is probably one aspect of our human existence which constitutes half mind and half body that scientists, researchers, doctors actually least understand. And this is why with a developing world that we live in although there is so much today that we have access to in terms of comforts, technology, facilities, stress, anxiety and other psychological disorders seem to be on the rise. It's one thing to suggest that if you get angry or if you lose control, if you become erratic, take a walk, count to ten, change your mind, think about something else. And it's something altogether, I believe, to actually provide substantial answers to these problems, to provide people with something that truly addresses these issues. But I feel that unless and until we look into the pool of knowledge that we all have and have access to, and that is our heritage, this pool of knowledge about the workings of the mind and how the mind is constructed and how the mind does all these wonderful things and creates and shapes and manifests all sorts of beautiful things unless we tap into this knowledge pool, I don't think we'll make much progress in terms of understanding how we think, work and act as human beings. So this pool of knowledge about the inner workings of the mind and how the whole thing hangs together is in fact contained within Buddhist philosophy. Now, I understand Buddhist philosophy and therefore I can make this claim. There may be those among you who are more well-versed with other disciplines and other schools of thought and perhaps other philosophies who may wish to propose and put forward their own ideas and concepts. I'm always open-minded and I invite you to remain the same. So in this series of talks, I now wish to turn a new page, take a bold new step forward to introduce you to the workings of the mind. I think it it feels right to say that we have been building ourselves up to this point because once we start digging in and unraveling the workings of the mind, a lot of things will come to light. A lot of the answers that have always seemed so evasive and so elusive will all of a sudden start to come alight and make sense. Last week I asked you the question, why is it that you seem to have no control over how you change your mind about things and the way you feel about things? And today I invite you to ask some of those questions again of yourself because it's only when you have a question you'll be interested in finding an answer just as much as someone who's thirsty will stop at no cost to find a source of water. Someone who's hungry will go to any length to get hold of some food. In much the same way, when you start pondering over some of these questions, such as, when you feel disappointed, how do you stop yourself from feeling that way? Why do you feel disappointed? I'm not talking about the external event, but disappointment is your response to it, isn't it? How about sorrow? And why is it that you feel sorrowful today, but a few days later, sometimes a few weeks or a few months, or maybe even a year or two later, you don't feel as much sorrow? Why is that? We need to find answers to these questions. Why is it that you find one person attractive, more attractive than another? But maybe over a period of time, your opinion changes. Sometimes even unbeknown to you. You don't know what's going on with yourself. You don't know what's going on in your mind. So you feel that you are in control, but you also feel that you are out of control. These two things at the same time coinciding with each other. It seems like a mess and a miracle at the same time, doesn't it? So we need to try and find some answers to these questions. And in our quest to find answers to these questions... I believe there is no better place than to look for these answers in the teachings of the great master, the greatest teacher that this world has ever seen, because he taught us about ourselves. Once you start to listen, explore, consider, understand and comprehend the ideas and concepts that I will, I look forward to sharing with you. None of these are my inventions. I'll remind you that this is what I have learned from my teachers, but it is not something I have accepted through blind faith or just because they have taught me such. You should know by now that I'm a very analytical person. I don't accept things at face value. I'll always question them. I'll always analyze them. And it has to make sense to me before I'll accept it. This is why I take the same approach with you and I'm sure you appreciate that. I have shared with you some concepts which I have asked you to just assume that they are true for the time being. I have never asked you to accept them. On some occasions we have worked on hypotheses because I have as yet not proved them to you because that will all come in due course, such as the concept of rebirth. We will come to those topics in future. I think what we are doing right now today is opening up those gates to take that journey to that destination. Welcome back from our last week's conversation, Introduction to the Mind. Today, let's explore how the mind actually works, how it comes into being, and what it's capable of, among other things. Before we do so, let us take a moment to pay homage to the Lord Buddha who discovered this by himself and then taught it to his disciples and they unto theirs and they unto theirs and so on. And today we have been so fortunate to receive that teaching from our teachers and share it for the benefit of all mankind. So join me then, let us pay homage to the Lord Buddha, to the fully awakened one, the infinitely compassionate one, the limitlessly merciful one. Once we do that, let's continue on our journey. <tries> <tries> Namo Thassa Bhagavato Arhato Samma Sambuddhassa Namo Thassa Bhagavato Arhato Samma Sambuddhassa Namo Thassa Bhagavato Arhato Samma Sambuddhas. Right. Let's get to it. Now, I promised you last week that I would make some illustrations so that you can better visualize the concepts that I have shared with you and I will continue to do and it will help you to Paint this picture in your mind as you attempt to grasp and understand these concepts. Now, with some of these illustrations, you must understand that they are just that. They are an illustration. A model, if you like. I may draw what I would like to present to you as a representation of the mind. But no matter what I draw on a whiteboard or on a screen, you must understand that the mind is not something that I can actually draw out and say, this is what the mind looks like. In a moment you will see me drawing or representing the mind as a perhaps a sine wave. Because the mind characteristically arises and passes away, just as everything else does. We discussed this briefly in our conversation last week. The reason that it does not feel or appear this way is because it happens so fast, so rapidly, that and there is no interval between the arising of two mind or thought moments. Because there is no interval between two thought moments, and because it happens so rapidly, it feels as if the mind is just one unit of existence. It does not feel that there are discrete thought moments which arise and pass away. And I asked you or invited you last week to consider this as a hypothesis for the time being if you work on that basis and you follow this line of thought and you contemplate on the content of this talk and what I will share with you, I think it will dawn upon you at some point that this hypothesis is something that you can accept without jeopardy to the principle Of how this things actually work. In other words, unless you are able to present a better hypothesis, I think you will accept that what I will share with you seems to address and answer a lot of the questions that you have about how you think, why you think the way you do, and uh, amidst all the other questions that we briefly talked about a few moments ago. So, without any further ado, let's get to it. Now, I'd like to draw your attention to the screen. as I will attempt to explain to you how the mind works. First and foremost, let's start with what we already know about ourselves. So, of course, we know that we have a body. This is a stick man to represent a human being. It's the best I can do, I'm afraid. You'll have to put up with me on that. Art was never my strength. This body we know is home or it houses several organs. And in particular, for this conversation, I'm referring to the sense organs. So there are five sense organs. Namely, the eye, the ear, nose, tongue, and of course, the body itself. So, I'm going to draw a hand to represent that. As I said, yes, you're right. Art is not my strength. But this is, you understand, this is, these are the five sense organs. Eye, ear, nose, tongue, and the body. In fact, I have a better idea. I'm going to get rid of this. Let's replace this with... the stick man himself. Because we understand that most of this have receptors which convey the sensation of touch to the brain. So these five sense organs are responsible for alerting us to what's going on in the outside world. Now some of this will sound very basic until we start to get into the nitty-gritty of it, but I think it's important for us to start with what we know and then build up to what we don't know and will eventually, of course, come to know. The eye obviously brings in sight. So, this is uh, trying to show you a flower. Let me see if I can do better than that. That's better. Okay. And uh, the ear, of course, sound. I I choose to draw a speaker. Okay. Uh, The nose, of course, smell. I will draw a, let's say, a bottle of perfume. Okay. And tongue, of course, taste. Let me draw a some cheese, okay, There we go. And the body, and here I'm referring to physical sensation of touch. I'm going to draw, I'm gonna draw, draw a fire because it's something that the body can, will sense. So this is a fire, all right? So of course the sense of heat. So we know we know that heat, cold, touch, pain, pressure, not pressure, sorry, pressure, these are things that the body detects or is sensitive to. And again by body I don't mean every bit of the body, I'm I'm referring to the organ that is sensitive to the sensation of touch. So I suppose you could think of it as a skin, but you know we must understand that pain and other tactile sensations can also be felt on the inside of our body. So I suppose the nervous system that's responsible for or the nervous receptors that are responsible for the sensation of touch and pain and so on is what we consider here. But these five sense organs, we, it's, it's fairly clear and obvious that these are the senses or the sensations that they convey to us to help us understand the outside world. Now these five sense organs we know, through our body's nervous system, convey these sensations to this wonderful organ that is the brain. I didn't want that to happen. So this is the brain, at least what looks like one. Hardly. Okay, so that's the best I can do for brain. Okay, this is the brain. Now, all of this we understand from physiology. Any doctor that is worth his salt will be able to explain that this is how we understand the world around us. Now, of course, this is in its very... Simplest of forms. You could detail this in much greater, at much greater length, but I'm trying to keep things simple and comprehensive at the same time. So by comprehensive, I want to be able to cover as much of what's going on, but I also want to keep it simple. Right, this much I think we all understand and it makes perfect sense. But we know that. The mind cannot be the brain. Because the brain is something that you can touch. It weighs. It's got color. It's got texture. Whereas the mind doesn't. And while we have the same brain throughout our lives, it wouldn't be fair to say that our mind remains constant throughout our lives because we keep changing our mind all the time sometimes about the same thing. We change our minds and we think about the same thing in different ways, in a different angle, from a different perspective. But when that changes, the brain doesn't change. So I think it's fairly obvious for us to come to the conclusion that the brain is not the mind, right? And I doubt anyone would Disagree with me, so I'm I'm just going to say the brain is not the mind, but I just want to make sure that we've got that out of the way Most people believe that the mind is contained within the brain So this mind is some kind of Energy if you like that is contained within the brain is what some people believe Now I'm not so focused on where you might find the mind as much as I am about what it actually does and how it works. So really, the focus of our conversation here is not about the location of the mind. We're not really all that interested in that. Because to be fair, it doesn't really matter. Because, you know, what we are here to do is to achieve happiness, isn't it? Right? That's the whole point of this talk because we are on the Buddha's guide to happiness. Now to understand how to be happy regardless of what goes on around us I think it would be reasonable to agree and accept that it matters not where the mind lives but how the mind actually works and how does it become disappointed? How does it get nervous? How does it get excited? How does it feel broken-hearted? These are some of the things that we need to spend some time understanding. So I'm not going to focus anymore on the location of the mind, but what I'm really interested in is to share with you what the mind is and how it works. If the brain didn't exist, the mind would not really be capable of doing very much at all, to be fair. Because, remember, I proposed to you this simile of the mind as being an octopus, but only with five tentacles. So, this is the best I can do for octopus. And four and five. That's our friendly octopus. So octopus or a pentacus, I suppose, is what you're going to have to call this thing. One, two, three, four, five. These five are the sense organs that I drew here. So again, this is a representation. I'm trying to, I mean, just looks like a really weird ghost but uh, let's, let's just imagine this is, the, this is a, 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 an octopus, right, or a pentacus. Now the mind is something like this. If this was the mind, if the, the, this head of the octopus were the mind, these five tentacles can be considered the eye, ear, right, nose, tongue and body. Because what they do is bring sensory inputs to the mind. So, as far as the mind is concerned, these guys are like agents. Agents who report to this central body, the mind, what's going on in the outside world. Because the mind needs this information to do stuff with. Without any of this information, the mind would be able to do very little. Now, something I mentioned very briefly in in our talk last week was that the mind is not entirely reliant on all this, on these five organs. I must make sure I mention this in order to make sure that our description is Accurate. That is because the mind is capable of feeling itself. So that the mind is capable of as well. One way it does this is by tapping into memory. Right? You have storage, like a computer does, where you store stuff. Well, what happened yesterday is not something that can come to the mind through your eye, ear, nose, tongue or body, is it? Because it's what happened yesterday. What about your dreams? When you're dreaming, you see things, sometimes funny things, sometimes scary things, sometimes weird things. And, but your sense organs are shut down, they're not doing anything. So the mind has a, mecha- has, has a way of feeding itself. This can be thought of as mental objects. So when these five sense organs do their thing, the mind happily accepts the inputs that it receives from these five sense organs. But if they don't for some reason, or if they were to retire for the need of sleep, then the mind can do it a fantastic job of feeding itself with data so for example when someone goes into a coma i believe that the mind is still operational it's doing stuff within itself okay so this is how the mind works in a very simplistic form. Now, let's see what actually happens with the mind. Let's take one of these examples. So we have the eye, like this, and we put in, we present an object in front of the eye. So I'm gonna use my flower again, okay, there we go. When we present an object to the eye, we know through our understanding of science that light waves, uh, so none of that is changing, this is all the same, are reflected back to the eye and onto the retina, and then the optic nerve carries this impulse to the brain, okay? So that was the, this is our brain. Now we understand this is to the back of the brain, right? But that's just too much detail. We don't need that level of detail. To be fair, and then where? How does this this impulse actually jump to the mind? So what we understand for the time being is that after this. Impulse reaches the brain, it does some wizardry to convert this electrical impulse which it received through this nerve because we understand that it 's electrical impulses that travel the axons of the, that is the body of the of, of the of the nerves and through the synaptic gaps. These chemicals do a fantastic job of conveying these impulses from nerve cell to nerve cell and so on. And the brain then takes a mental impression. So it takes an impression of this signal, of this input and passes that on to the mind. So, just to recap, the brain is of course not the mind itself and we're not really interested in where the mind lies, so although I'm showing you a brain here, I'm not really trying to or attempting to tell you that the brain, that the mind lives in the brain. That's not what I'm trying to share with you here, but what I'm trying to explain to you is, the brain is involved indeed. There's no question about that. This flower or this object would never come into the scope of the mind. The mind would never become aware of this flower if it weren't for light, if it weren't for the eye, if it weren't for the nervous system, and if it weren't for the brain. All of these, are components of this system, this system that gives us sight. And they all have an important and a vital part to play in converting, really, if you look at it, if you just consider the beginning and the end, what's happened is a physical object that is this flower and Waves, electric waves or electromagnetic waves, that is light, has been converted to a mental impression. Because it's only a mental impression that the mind can actually compute. Of course we understand that you can't shine light on the mind and expect that to work. It doesn't work like that. Because the mind is too subtle It's too delicate, it's not something physical, so therefore you can't take something physical and stick it in the mind. So for instance you can't take sound waves and remove all of the organs that sit between the ear and the brain and expect to have sound read or reach the mind, there has to be a mechanism, a physical mechanism, which is responsible for converting these sound waves that reach the ear to a mental impression that is received at the mind. So there's a... this this fantastic and wonderful process that happens between the sense organ and the mind. The same goes for taste, for instance. This is a piece of cheese, or a slice of cheese, and there's no way that the mind can actually taste this physical object. Instead, what's going on is we know, of course, that Even after the point of the tongue, it's, you know, quite, put it quite simply, it's only the tongue that comes into contact with the the piece of cheese. So, you know, this is made up of chemicals. There are molecules that make up this piece of cheese. And it's only the physical tongue, this muscular part of the body, that actually comes into contact with this. Right after this, this, this organ that is the tongue, it is converted to an electrical signal, isn't it? Before it even goes to the brain. So, right after the, the, the tongue itself, or the taste buds, the receptors on the, on the surface of the tongue, it's an electrical signal. Now, you need to understand that an electrical signal is not taste, because you can't taste an electrical signal. You can stick a live wire on your tongue and ask the question, what does that taste like? I mean, you wouldn't even live to tell the tale. But, you know, it would be quite unreasonable to expect that an electrical signal would contain any of these physical sensations. Instead, what they are are a representation of these stimuli. So, you could think of it as being encoded. The, this information, the sight of this flower, the sound that is generated by this speaker, the smell of the perfume, the taste of the cheese, and the heat of this fire, they are encoded into an electrical signal, which, is, which then travels to the brain. And once it reaches the brain, the brain then, once again, encodes this information into a format which the mind is able to perceive. So, I'm explaining all of this to you because I would like for you to recognize that this this kind of encoding does not only happen between the brain and the mind but this encoding also happens between the actual object and the brain itself. So if this this type of encoding can happen at this point then, you know, what's stopping our imagination from accepting that such a thing could happen between the brain and the mind? So this encoding, decoding, this goes on all over the place. right? So, once again, these sense inputs come into contact with the sense organs and the information, what is the information here, sight, sound, smell, taste and touch. This information is encoded into an electrical signal, all of this Physiologists will be able to tell us, doctors, scientists are able to teach us, no problem. That's exactly where we learned them at school. But then at, after that, the brain does a, an amazing job of re-encoding that information so that the mind is able to perceive it. So the mind does not actually receive an electrical signal. Instead, there's an encoding that happens at the mind. At the brain, sorry. Which the mind is then able to perceive. So when the mind receives this stimuli, this encoded message from the brain, it's time for the mind to now perceive it. Let me repeat that. When the mind receives this message from the brain, it's time for the mind to perceive it. What does that mean? Well, it means something like this. Let's take this example again, which is the flower coming and light coming into contact with the eye. This message that is received at the mind, so this is a sight object the moment this impulse this 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 input this stimuli or the stimulus reaches the mind it is the mind's job now to perceive this so this is how you understand what you're looking at now you know when you're looking at a flower you, you're looking at a flower it would be Unreasonable to expect that this is the eye that's teaching you all this, isn't it? Or informing you that it's an it's a flower you're looking at. Because the eye is not capable of such things. The all the eye is capable of is to convert light energy to electrical energy. There's no way the eye can tell you what you're looking at. That's not the function of the eye. Neither is it the function of the brain entirely. But the brain is, of course, an integral component of this mechanism which receives this electrical signal and then encodes it into a format which the mind, which is yet another organ, but not an organ that you can touch like the eye or the ear or the tongue, But in Buddhist philosophy, we consider the mind to also be an organ, a sense organ. So the mind receives this signal, this sight object, and then it's the duty, the job of the mind to now perceive it. So here I'm trying to explain to you how it is that when you look at a flower, you know that you're looking at a flower. Because that has to happen somewhere, right? Because it's not a flower that reaches the eye. It's only light waves. And of course, you know, there could be all sorts of other things in the background. So this flower could be a bunch of flowers. What about then? How do you know one flower from another? This could be in the forest, maybe among trees, right? Then how do you know that you're looking at a bunch of flowers but underneath a canopy of trees. How do you know this? The, the, the eye can only pick up light. The, sun, the ear can only pick up vibrations. The nose, the tongue can only pick up chemicals. So you know, you may know that the tongue actually has receptors for various shapes of molecules. So if you can mimic that particular shape, then the tongue will identify that chemical as being the same. This is how they make artificial sweetness. The tongue has parts of it that is receptive to sweet, such as the tip here. This is how we understand the tongue and how it works, and if you can mimic the shape of such molecules by or through using another chemical component then you can trick the, the brain you can actually trick the, the tongue because it's not the brain you're tricking really you can trick the tongue to carry or be stimulated so that a signal is carried to the brain without it being the actual molecule that is supposed to be doing that. It's a shape that this is receptive to. So we know that it's not the actual outside object that goes into the mind. It's, an, it's not even the electrical signal because they all stop at the brain and the brain then encodes that electrical signal into... A format that the mind is able to receive. That we call a sight object or it could be a sound object, a smell object, a taste object or a touch object. By object I don't mean the actual physical object that has a weight, a length, width, and breadth. That's not what I mean. By object at this point I mean the impression on the mind so this is a wholly mental impression at this point you couldn't stick an you can't stick a the, the the eye at this point and be able to perceive what is being seen here so at this point this this encoding converts this message into something so subtle that only the mind can actually receive this So, in that sense, the brain actually does a wonderful job. The brain is what makes this message compatible for the mind. Without the brain, the mind would not be able to understand what information the ear, or sorry, the eye has carried through. So these are the impressions which are these which which are what I mean by objects. And these impressions, as I said, they're very subtle. These are these can only be perceived by the mind. So they're so delicate. I mean why, I, I just I want to make sure that you understand what I mean by it. when I say delicate or subtle, you know, it's not something that can be touched, it's not something that can be seen or smelt, or tasted, we are way past that point. Only the mind is capable of perceiving them. So it's like an energy, if you like. It's nothing physical. It's like an energy. Okay? So this impression has now been received at the mind, and now it's the mind's job to perceive what it has received. In other words, We need to know that we are looking at a flower, right? You need to know that. That's how you know where to extend your arm to pluck it. So for that, you need to know you're looking at a flower. So this, the mind is, it's the mind's responsibility to recognize what you're looking at. And to do this, what happens is, when this sight object arrives at the mind organ, Okay, a thought arises and I'm going to draw a curve that looks like this. Okay, this I would like for you to understand as a representation. This is not what the mind looks like. Remember the mind does not have a shape or a form that I can draw on a board and and say and tell you this is what the mind looks like. But instead This is a a visual representation of what's actually going on. At this point you see this is a trough and here you have a peak. Trough here because the mind has not or a a thought has not yet arisen and here the thought has passed away. So you, you could think of this as being on a graph of time and amount of energy. Okay, so this could be, you can consider this to be the amount of energy. So at this point, the, the thought has not arisen yet. At the moment, this sight object comes into contact with the organ that is the mind, a thought is spawned. It arises and passes away. It arises for a purpose. So this is not, you know, just what happens just because. It arises for a reason. It has a purpose. And that purpose is to recognize and to perceive what it is that the eye has just seen. So now we need to understand and perceive that this is a flower that we're looking at. So how does it know this? the moment this sight object arrives in the mind, a thought arises, okay, a thought arises, and this thought, it's responsible, this thought is responsible to perceive what this object is that the eye has just seen. So for that, this thought is capable of tapping into what we talked earlier about the memory bank, Yeah, because it needs to do that so it knows that it's a flower that it's looking at because if you're, not, if you're looking at something you've never seen before you don't know what you're looking at it's, a, it's something brand new you've never seen it before but the moment you see a flower you know you're looking at a flower because it's your memory that's helping you do this now when this thought arises its job, its duty is to identify The object that the eye is looking at, its job is also to register the fact that an object has been seen. So that's how you know you've seen something. That's all to do with the mind. So the mind knows that it's seen something, right? Way before it knows what it's seen, first you need to know that it's seeing something. So, once again, when the, when the sight object is received at the mind, its very first job is to recognize or is to register that a sight has been seen. So, the mind can do that because it knows the kind of object that has just been dumped at the mind. So you can think of this as a terminal and at this point the brain just keeps on dumping stuff at the mind and the first task of the mind is to identify what has just been received. Whether that is a sight object, a sound object, a smell object, a taste object or a touch object. It's the thought which, who's responsible for identifying, or rather, for registering that it is a sight object, a sound object, smell, taste, or touch object that has just been received, and soon after it registers, the next thing it needs to do is to is to recognize this. So it's it's almost like saying, "Hey, some things just happened, okay? Some things just happened." And then the next question is obviously going to be, what has just happened, right? So it's like you know, say you're in bed and you you hear a, a sound, you hear some noise coming from the outside, or you hear a, su- a sudden sound, and you know you know that something's going on, but obviously immediately next you want to know what's going on. So there's something's going on. In other words. A sight has just been seen is the first, the very first task of this, of this thought. And immediately after that, it needs to recognize what it is that it has seen. And when this what comes, this question of what is it that, I, I, that has been seen comes in, it has to dip into memory. And so it has, a, it has to go and have a good rummage in it to find out, do we know this? thing that we've just seen, have I seen something like this before? So it, it virtually uses this impression that it has just received from the mind. This impression is compared to similar impressions in memory. And when there's a match, it comes back and says, yep, that's a flower, all right. So, this is all happening in this thought. So now the thought identifies. First it has registered that it's a sight and then it has recognized that it's a flower. Okay? And up next, it needs to know what can be done with what it has seen. So this is the next important thing. When someone shows something to you, like just think about that, when, when someone shows something to you, the first thing that you can reasonably imagine to happen in your mind is to first register that something has been seen, Right? your friend walks up to you and shows something to you. The first thing that you will know is something has been seen. The next thing you will know is what is it that has been seen. Yeah, that's the second thing that will happen. And immediately afterwards, you'll want to know what can be done with what I have just seen. So it could be I'm going to keep staring at it. That's also something you do. It could be I'm going to go touch it. It could be I'm going to have a bite of it. It could be I'm going to go smell it. It could be I'm going to go pluck it. I'm going to go crush it. Right, so you could do all sorts of things, but you need to know what are the possibilities. What are the possibilities? What are the what is possible in the realms of that which can be done with this sight object, or with the object that has just been received? Now that is also a task of this thought. So. We've discussed three already. The first was to register. Yeah, that was the first thing to do. Secondly, recognize. Thirdly, ask the question and get an answer to what can be done What can be done with this? Yeah, that's the third thing. What can be done with this? Can I keep looking at it? Can I, for example, maybe find out more about it? So it could be, you know, if it's something you you don't know, you've never seen before, the action, right? The action that is associated with with this object could be, could possibly, could likely be, I don't know the first thing about it. I better go find out. That is all part to do with the action that is involved here. And the fourth thing is to perceive. Now, I should have added that there was one right before this, which is also part and parcel of the thought. So really, I'm going to say this is, this is the first one, this is to be the second, third, fourth, and finally the fifth. So the first duty of the t- of the of the thought itself is to actually is to actually receive, receive the object. Right? So it receives the object that has just been sent to it by, by the brain. So that's the receiving bit. Secondly, the registering bit. Thirdly, recognizing. Fourthly, understanding what action can be taken about it. And fifthly, and finally, the culmination of all of this is the ultimate perception of what you have seen. You know, this is what we have been waiting for. All of the above was conducive and constructive to achieving this ultimate aim, the fifth one, which is to perceive. Because it is the perception that you wanted all this time. You know, when you say, this is a flower, and you perceive a flower, all of this has already happened, hasn't it? Think about it for a second. When you place a flower in front of your eye, or you put your eye in front of a flower, or behind a flower, you know that the first thing that needs to happen is, this, this sight has to be received by the mind then you need, to be, you need to be able to register I mean this is how sometimes say if you're deep in thought about something right? someone could come and wave their hands in front of you and you wouldn't know you wouldn't know one bit why? because registering is not happening at that moment in time because if registering is not happening you're not going to recognize it and if you're not going to recognize you're not going to know what to do with it And then if that's not happening, you're not going to perceive it. So, I think it will be pretty obvious at this point to understand that these five things, these five things are critical, they're crucial, they're essential to understanding the world around us. Ultimately, it's perception that we're after, right? Because if we if we were able to perceive without any of these things, then that would be wonderful. But, you know, you you wouldn't be able to. In fact, perception is the, as I said, the culmination of all of this. This is the be-all and end-all of it. This is where we wanted to go, to perceive it. How do you perceive something? It's all... This is, the, this is the end result, but to get here, all of the above needed to happen. So once again, it had to be received. Yeah, it had to be received. So through this process, I'm just taking the I here, and the same happens with every other sense organ. Right? So first we receive. Secondly, we register that something's happened. Or in other words, an object has been received on the mind. Right? So that's the registering. Thirdly, we recognize it. What is this object? Is it a sight? Is it a sound? Is it, a, is it smell or taste or touch? Do we know about this? Has, is it something we've, I've seen before or heard before? What do I know about it? Right? This is where memory comes in, this recognition bit. And then, what can be done with it? What action can be taken? Can I find out more about it? Can I taste it? Can I put it in my mouth? Can I can I lick it? Can I touch it? Can I bite it? Can I chew it? All of this. Can I throw it up in the air? Can I kick it? Can I sit on it? Can I put my head on it? All sorts of stuff. All of this is to do with what action can be taken. And then finally, when you add up all of this you get to the fifth one which is perception because this is what we are after. How do you perceive this object in front of the eye? So these five things are the five tasks of a thought and that is what happens between the arising and passing away of one thought moment. And as soon as this has happened it is passed away the next thought arises, and that also passes away, having done these five things. And the moment that passes away, the next one arises, and it also passes away, having done yet again these five things. And then when that happens, of course, the next one arises and passes away, and so on and so forth. This is what has always happened and this is what will always happen and it's what's happening right now. Right now as you listen to me speak, as you watch what's going on screen, lots of these things are arising and passing away and each one fulfilling its purpose. And what is, it pur- what is its purpose? Ticking off these five things. Receiving, registering, recognizing, determining action, and finally, perceiving. Each thought that arises, its role, its purpose is to do these things, and once it's done that, it's time to say goodbye, pass away. Talking about saying goodbye, it's also time for us to say goodbye for this week, But I want to leave you with this and I invite you to perhaps if this has been a a tad bit too heavy maybe go back and watch it another time. Now you have the visuals you can go back and refer to it. It's always helpful to watch this the first instance and then now you've got the picture in your mind go back and watch it one more time at least and then things start to make a whole lot more sense. Now, this is a very brief and a very preliminary introduction to what's, really, what's going on with the mind. We have lots more to talk about. But before we do that, it's important that we understand the, the basics. Okay? So, I'll revisit this next week, I promise. But I think if I leave you with this for today, this should be, this should be enough food for thought for you to start to think about what's really going on inside my mind what's what is the mechanism what are the dynamics of the mind right and here we are so this is a very simple representation but it's where we all start and it's it's important for us to grasp the basic principles of what's going on so I'm going to leave you with that for today and I once again urge you to go back and watch this in, uh, at least once more so that things start to make a lot more sense than it probably does at this moment in time. I promise to continue the conversation again next week as we look, take another step forward and start looking into this a bit deeper and start to unravel some more of the beautiful wonders that lay within the realms of the mind. So, looking forward to speaking to you next week for that. Before we conclude today's talk, let's take a moment to transform the that we have all acquired. To all those who have helped us get where we are today, understand and be able to contemplate and comprehend these ideas, these concepts, the workings of the mind, the truth, which is what will eventually and ultimately set us all free. All right then, let's take a moment to transfer merits. We have all acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem, chanting, listening to the Dhamma, and engaging in various meritorious deeds today. First and foremost, let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching, and with immense gratitude, let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasakas and upasikas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Tripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand, and comprehend the Dhamma. Let also transfer the we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world including the chief prelates of all the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us also transfer these merits to our teachers and all other monks resident at this monastery, as well as all the Anagarikas and Anagarikas attached to the monastery. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be by transliterating these sermons, sharing them out with others or inviting others to join them, and may through the power of these maids, if any of them have been born in the woful plains, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain, may through the power of these maids they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. sadhu. Let us also transfer the merits we have acquired to our devotees, friends of the monastery, who, for the sake of merits, continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery, to those of you who provide the Mahasanga with shelter, arms, robes and medicines, as well as those who have passed on their know-how and continue to extend their well wishes. May, it to the power of these maids, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the Noble Eightfold Path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu Sadhu Sa. Let us also take a moment to translate to our mothers, fathers, husbands, wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our elders, friends and acquaintances, employers and employees, and to all those who have helped us and supported us, assisted us in any way, shape or form. And by the power of these maids, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the Noble Eightfold Path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to to the devas, brahmanas, spirits, and demons, primarily the Devas, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Sambuddha Sasana. Let us also us to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And may through the power of these maids they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the normal eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer, to our ancestors who have predeceased us, and to all those who have been our families, friends, and acquaintances in this infinitely long journey in samsara, and to those who have helped, supported, and assisted us in every way they could. Let us also transfer, to the members of the armed forces, as well as the police force, who have sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nations, and may all those who lost their lives in the war be their friend or foe, rejoice in the mace that we have acquired today. Let us also transmit it to all those who have lost their lives in natural calamities, such as the tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides and pandemics, including the most recent and prevailing one. Reminding ourselves that among them will be those who have been friends and family to us in this long journey in samsara. Let us take a moment to transmit it to them. And may through the power of these, may if any of them have been born in the Warful Plains, redeem themselves and be born in the Blissful Plain, May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. That is all resolved. That may, to the power and blessings of all the we have acquired throughout the day, we we'll be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of our hunts on this blessed land. And finally, may, to the power and blessings of all the we have acquired throughout the day, you and I, and everyone who's helped make this program a success, become an arahatun vahansi, an arahattherun in in this very life itself and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Saj. And on that note, we will conclude today's talk and looking forward to continuing our conversation next week. May the blessings of the Nobel Triple Gem be with you all.